This is the Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheiman, brought to you by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. From the Gal Media Studios, here's Greg Scheinman. All right, here we go. It is the Midlife Mail Podcast. I am your host, Greg Scheinman. I am snacking away in a little yum butter here. So thanks to the guys at Yum Butter for sending me that awesome care package. This is the superfood cashew butter with chia, hemp seeds, and goji that I'm snacking on right now. So thanks to my man, Matt D'Amour, who did the show a couple of weeks ago for sending this stuff over. It is awesome. Go find it at your local grocery stores. If you like what you hear on the Midlife Mail podcast, first of all, thank you guys very much for listening. Give us that five-star review. Tell everybody you know about it. If you got ideas for other great Midlife Mail guests, just hit me up at gregshineman.com, and I will certainly look into it. I really appreciate any and all suggestions you guys may have. Daryl Lyons knows what it means to be a Midlife Mail trying to balance finances, family, and business. All right. I was nervous. Actually, I was downright scared shitless for this interview because I know I need help with money, managing finances, and Daryl's the real deal. His book, 18 to 80, cuts right to it with great advice and insight into such areas as the money side of marriage, budgeting for those not good at budgeting, and adult peer pressure. Wow, Daryl, it's like you wrote this book specifically for me. Uh, We'll get into my own issues at another time. Hey, Daryl, San Antonio, Texas company Pax Financial Group is an Inc. 5000 fastest growing company and a best place to work. His work and his passion have allowed Daryl to also give back to the community, earning him the praise of the likes of Dave Ramsey and San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro. He's also helped establish a Eurasia Award called the David Robinson Award that recognizes an athlete in Eurasia who shows character and athletic excellence. His latest mission is to help redefine retirement where we no longer think of retiring, but rather pivot into the next chapter of life with purpose. Hey, that's what we're doing here with the Midlife Mail. Live the next phase of your life, the best phase of your life. This idea is rooted in thousands of one-on-one conversations with people about money and a relatively new study called behavioral finance, which we will dig into again. Daryl Lyons on the Midlife Mail podcast coming to you right now. On the show today, Daryl Lyons, certified financial planner and a behavioral financial advisor. He is also the author of a simple and practical guide to money and retirement for all ages. Daryl, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. Look forward to it. Great. So, one of the things we deal with um, in midlife is, is money, um, relationship with money, um, relationship in terms of marriage and family and managing money and, and dealing with money. Um, I struggle with this myself, anxiety over finances, how is enough, how I'm living, um, how I should be planning. So I really appreciate you, you being here and taking some time to talk through this. Um, First, first and foremost, let, let me just start by asking, 10 o'clock in the morning right now, I get you on the phone. What, what have you done this morning? What's your routine? I always like to know that. Uh, yeah, a little different maybe than most. 
um, certainly, uh, you know, I get up in the morning uh, and uh, get my kids off to school. Um, and, uh, you know, every Wednesday morning, um, I, I, I do my Bible time. Uh, that's from eight to nine. Um, and then, um, and then from nine to 10, um, I had to, uh, I had a stack of books. I had an autograph. So I spent some time doing that. And then, um, I had a, uh, it's, we have to revise some employee positions. So I did that within the last hour. Uh, that was my morning. And then after this, um, I'll break and go work out for just a, about an hour and then come back to work. And I've got a meeting from one to, to five. And then at, and I know I'm giving you more than you want, but then at five, <clears throat> I've got a dinner function that I've got to be at. So it's a very full day. Oh, and then at seven, uh, me and my wife are going to go on a date to go see a, 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 an artist called Matt Carney at a concert here in town. So very long day for me, but a good day, fun day. Good. Day. No, it's, it's certainly not more, more than I was looking for. Um, I'm always curious about kind of times that guys wake up and when they get their start. Are they morning people, evening people? You know how to how we fit it all in, juggling everything that we have to juggle. Um, what was the impetus for the book? Let's go there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I've this was my third book and. I had spent, I've spent since 1999 kneecap to kneecap with thousands of people talking about their money. Um, very high volume business. Um, I don't, I don't see as many clients as I used to, but, uh, spend a lot of time just having conversations with people in the middle class. And I, and I, and I really differentiate that because those in a lower class, it's not a, an indictment of social character, but, um, you know, they have different needs. Um, if you're on a government subsidy, there's just different needs that I, I don't address. And if you have a, a yacht, there's different needs as well, and I don't address those. I address those in the middle class, which is defined um, in various ways. Pew Research did a study and said between 47 and 125,000 is middle class. It's really a, certainly a debatable number, but the, the reality is, is if if you're not on food stamps and you don't have a yacht, you're middle class. And so, the, yeah, I've just had so many conversations with people in the middle class. And then just taking inventory of all the you know peripheral conversations at, at functions about money. And in our little community, just um, people often will call me up or turn to me for money questions. And so I um, I just found some common themes. Um, I started diving into some of Daniel Kahneman's work in the 1970s, which was rooted in behavioral finance. And uh, Daniel Crosby came out with some stuff <clears throat> recently, and um, I hired a coach because I really wanted to understand the idea of behavioral finance. And so I hired an expert to kind of guide me in this space named Chuck Walkendorfer. And um, there's a designation out there called Behavioral Financial Advisor, and so I went through that curriculum. Behavioral finance, by the way, is a collision of neuroscience, psychology, and traditional finance. And I understood that, um, and I'm also, one other thing I want to mention, I'm also a Dave Ramsey guy. I've enjoyed Dave Ramsey over the years and what he does and how he actually changes people's lives. And I have a good relationship with him and his firm up in Nashville. So all that being said, I just kind of nerded out um, on... Uh, the how behavior um, and money collide because I'd always been a math geek when it came to money and a good example is when I had a client come in in their 70s and he's an attorney and um, they uh, uh, I'd done everything right with their investments and you know checked all the boxes with protecting their family and gave them good advice and decision making but when it came down to uh, them transitioning into a second chapter of life later on in their 70s 
they had a disagreement on outcomes, expectations, concerns. They ended up getting divorced, and I thought, you know, all the planning I did was for not because they cannot live off of the basket of money separately. You know, two two separate cell phone bills, two separate grocery bills. Uh, and I didn't catch that. You know, I didn't ask some of the other conversations about how do you, you know, mm-hmm. spousal alignment or, you know, making sure expectations were aligned. I just missed all the important stuff. And it and it just certainly started to, I started to realize how important behavior is. And is, is there any way that I can start helping people uh, make better decisions. And that's when I started to really get into that. And then, and, and as, and I blogged on that for about a year and I took the collection of those blogs and that became uh, a book. So long answer to short question. So if you're looking for that type of guidance, advice and experience in terms of making better decisions, obviously we got to pick up a copy of the book to, you know, in there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, exactly. What, what I noticed um, also in, in going through the book, um, and I guess instead of, of chapters, there are sections, and they're also aged. Um, but one of them in there is the money side of marriage. And I wanted to ask you to elaborate on that a little bit. Um, again, I'm 45 years old right now. I think our, our target demographic, again, being the midwife male, Typically, we're talking about guys that have been married for a while, similar routine to you. I'm taking my kids to school in the morning. We've got the house. We've got the mortgage. I'm working the the career, um, got the family. And the money side of of marriage or any relationship in general um, is challenging. And I think you touched on a few things about discipline uh, as well and communication. But I'd like to to get your thoughts, even just give me, give me a few minutes of personal therapy you know, and advice on yeah. what you really mean on the money side of marriage. Yeah. So in the book, it, again, the book's 18 to 80, everything you need to be doing with your money from age 18 to age 80. And so um, every chapter is an age. Uh, and, and, you know, as I'm sitting with people, I'm sitting with clients all the time and I'm going, Oh, you're 42. I need to write a chapter on this. Cause all 42 year olds are kind of thinking about this. So, 40, uh, I don't remember the exact age I put uh, for money side of marriage, but... Um, well, you put it in at 25 I, over here, okay? Um, yeah, so 20 okay. years before me, which means I'm a little late <laughs> to the conversation, okay? <laughs> but, well, great point. You know, it's so good, you know, and that's a part of the book is that you can go back and say, I need to reflect on that or look forward into the future, and that's that's the uh, that's beautiful. I'm glad you did that. And, well, and 25, cool I've got... That, hey, not to cut you off, but hey, age 45, it literally says checkup time. So I think we just nailed it, you know? You put it in 25, and I'm checking up on it at 45, which is the time I'm supposed to. So, so Wonderful. Look, it's, yay. It's like you're psychic. <laughs> Good. I love it. I love it. And, and uh, there was a lot of help that went into that book, so I can't take credit for all of it, but thank you. The uh, money side of marriage is, is um, so important. I was... Is, I, and, and, and you, you see me quote this in here, the easiest way, way to become a millionaire is be a billionaire and get a divorce. And it's so true, and, and we see it all the time. Those that are transitioning to retirement, specifically that group, and then I'll come back to 45-year-olds in a minute, but that group, that's the fastest-growing demographic of divorce, the graying of America, the gray divorce is what they call it. And what happens is, is we just have coping mechanisms over the years. Um, instead of actually having adult conversations about money, we create coping mechanisms, and I hide money here and shovel money there, and we don't have an alignment. We don't. We haven't taken our money and aligned it with the values, and maybe, frankly, 
maybe frankly we just haven't aligned our values to husband and wife or maybe we haven't aligned our concerns and, and have some give and take there and then then we get to the point where uh, kids are grown and we've been coping we've used coping mechanisms to mask some of the adult conversations and it all blows up uh, down the road and that's why people at an alarming demographic, alarming rate that demographics getting a divorce. So it's not easy. I mean, the idea of aligning and having conversations about what's your expectations, what are your dreams, and, and simple things. Let me give you an example. Um, you know, we 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 I have clients that wrestle with where we're going to vacation when we retire, um, and it sounds like you know let's we're, we're going to travel. But then you ask one spouse. And they say, I want to RV, and the other one says, I want to go to Europe. <clears throat> Not a big deal. Figure it out. But it becomes a crux of really stress, those conversations. And so I want people to have some of those difficult conversations in a very adult environment now. Another thing that might come up is, you know, how do we feel about our kids' college? And, and it's not till our kids get there that we actually start having these robust conversations. Well, why not have them now? Uh, we want our kids to go to college, but what about um, what about some maybe a junior college? And what are your concerns about junior college? You know, people have um, a, a specific inclination on how they view college based on how they were raised, and maybe we should unpack that and and wrestle with that a little bit more. Some people say, "I'm going to send my kids to Baylor because I went to Baylor." Well. The other spouse might say, well, you went to Baylor, I didn't, and it's too expensive. So, you know, just having these conversations in a very mature way is important. And I did some research here, and, and you know this, and I know this, but we don't, we don't admit to it. Marital counseling works. I wasn't sure about that. Mm -hmm. um, I did marital counseling before I got married, but marital counseling actually works. And um, if you want to buy good insurance, you buy marital counseling because, again, if, if – if the probability of getting divorced is going up at a rapid pace, marital counseling reduces the probability of divorce by about 30%. And so if there is coping mechanisms and people aren't able to have an agreement on concerns, expectations, values, and align the money with those things, then I do suggest marital counseling. Well, first and foremost, I'm all about good insurance. Uh, <laughs> and that's yeah. what I do for a living. So that's that's just, what you do. That's right. Unfortunately, we do not offer marital counseling insurance, but I get where you're, <laughs> where you're going with this, and it's certainly a prudent investment. And you beat me to you know, what was going to be one of my follow-up questions was about, you know, I think that, that people have a little challenge or sometimes difficulty even communicating with the one with their spouse, the one they love the most and they're supposed to be open with, but communicating one-on-one -on -one, um, about some of these challenges and even their values or things that they're thinking about. So the advice to bring in that third party or get some counseling and be proactive about that in advance is, is certainly really, really prudent. Um, you also talk about behavior, money mistakes to recognize. Um, what are some what are some of the money mistakes that that people are making? Yeah, so we have heuristics or rules of thumb, and this doesn't as well impact our marriage. Uh, where we um, where we were raised, we were all raised with um, an idea of money based on what we observed from our parents. And many, you know, being parents today, listening. We don't know the last thing about money. We're all making it up as we go. And our parents before us didn't know anything, but we observed a few things. And, and maybe we're 
very, very tight with our money because we grew up without much money, or maybe we're a free spirit with money. And some of these things are just heuristics and rules of thumb that we've that we've had, we've developed, and we continue to use them. Let me give you an example. I was in um, the Sprint store the other day. I got a new iPhone X, and I went in there, and the lady said, um, "Hey, we've got these new um, uh, headphones that are on sale, uh, buds, and they're 99 bucks. And we never have them in inventory, and um, just want to make sure you know that we have them." And I said, "Well, I." I didn't plan on buying these, so I'm going to pass. And she looked at me, and she goes, well, you only live once. And, and you know, I thought about it. I didn't correct her, but um, I thought about it. I said, if that's, a, if that's a heuristic, a rule of thumb in which that she makes decisions on, she's going to find that that's, that's a, 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 a false rule of thumb, and she's going to end up making poor decisions. And so we kind of have to reframe our our thinking and say, what biases or heuristics do we have in our decision-making, and do we need to change them? And so uh, one of the filters I suggest in the book of, of reframing the way you make decisions, and this is also on career decisions, is that if you're making decisions, and there's zeros on it, it's even more important that you do this, ask yourself, did I ask a child, a friend, and a sage? And the reason that the, that question is so important is because you're challenging heuristics in the decisions that you're about to make. And you're challenging it because if you can articulate your complex decision to a child and you understand it better, a friend will know you and a sage is somebody with wisdom. And so I'm, I'm asking people to challenge the heuristics and rules of thumb that they grew up with, reframe by um, asking people that are either child, a friend, and a sage, and then, and then make the right decision. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Um, to get kind of simplistic you know, on, on things also, what's your view on just, just general in terms of family budget, use of credit versus cash? You know, again, how to maybe change certain behaviors or, you know, now everything is so, so easy. You know, I can store my credit card in Amazon. You know, you can do everything. You don't feel like you're spending a lot. So I think that things become habit almost, or they become instant gratification. They just become easy, and you don't realize the ramifications or the downside until you get to, to the end of the month, maybe. Um, and at that point, maybe it's a vicious cycle. What, what's your take on, on credit or use of credit or balance? I mean, and I'll, as an example, I, I have a card, and I get all of my you know, Marriott star points. You know, on it. So I love that. It helps us, it helps us travel, but am I overutilizing that card to kind of accumulate these points to maybe take a vacation we shouldn't be taking at that point, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm going to answer that directly, but indirectly first. Uh, so th- you mentioned something that's very important and that's the fact that we um, can swipe our debit card so quickly, one click pay, optimal purchasing, um, it is out of control right now. The lack of friction or the lack of pause that exists um, before we make a decision is the sole reason, this, this lack of pause in, in purchasing is the sole reason why at the end of the month we don't have cash to give, to save, or to pay down debt. Because we look up and we've got a bunch of Amazon boxes on our front door, and then we wonder, why don't we have money to give, save, and pay down debt? And it's because it, there's no friction of buying anymore, no pause, and we're not thinking. And it's out of control, and I, I talk to everyone all the time, and it's just, it's a real issue. And there's the dopamine burst that comes 
with each purchase and then the dopamine burst when we open the box. So yep. with that being said, most of us don't have the self-control um, that you may have and, and benefit. And I agree, there's benefits of having points associated with purchasing, but most people have uh, two problems with using credit. And this is why I'm not a proponent of using credit. Um, I want people to be very careful with it because most people will um, spend more, and, and we, we know this research exists, spend more with credit. And then two, they're playing with snakes, so it doesn't take long for uh, somebody who has a normal habit of paying the balance off to get in a financial crunch and fail to pay that balance and slowly start to see that balance accumulate to the point where it becomes dangerous. Now, some people have self-control, but so I don't typically propose that people credit for their consumption. I think it, it could be problematic, but I do understand those that that make the case I get great points and uh, it's useful for other tools. You just know that there's uh, that you're you're probably paying you're probably buying more than you should and you could be playing with snakes. So just be careful. You touched earlier about dropping your kids off at school. Um, your church study in the mornings and everything else, um, your, your, your marriage as well. Talk to me a little bit about how you position yourself and with what you do for a living, personally and professionally. Can you practice what you preach at, at home? Can you have these conversations and everything di- directly? I often wonder about how, you know, in, even in my industry and business people that I deal with and everything else, you find out, wow, okay, are we missing things that we're even advising our clients, you know, of? Because we're so busy um, trying to impact the lives of others. Oh goodness, such a! I think the question in and of itself, Greg, is one of the most important questions you can ask. Um, and I, and I mean that sincerely because, and it's one that I have to take heart in. I, you know, there's this, if I could apply the skills that I use in business to home. Um, I would have a great opportunity, and I tell my wife. I told her the other day. We, have, by the way, just as context, we have a 13-year-old um, who's a wonderful young man, but he has some medical issues that we are challenged with, and he's um, treatment, hospitalization. It's been complex and difficult. We have an 11-year-old who's a, a, a bundle of joy. She's a social butterfly. Uh, struggles with math. I have a, a six-year-old who's wonderful, but the always this, this age for all our kids is a little defiant age. And then I have a four-year-old who's just a, a bundle of joy right now, really our perfect child. So the context of that question is so good, and I want to give you background of my family because I do talk money with them, and I do try to apply these principles. Now, money and business have two different – there's two different things there, but let me talk money because that might be mm-hmm. more most helpful. What I first um, – when I first um, try to be – a good uh, money person for my kids, I used Excel spreadsheets. And uh, that does not work. And the other thing that I tried to do is I tried to apply the same uh, conversation to the, all the kids. And all the kids, as, you, as I just mentioned, have different traits and personalities. Mm-hmm. So w- what I've now understood is that the conversation with money has to be customized for the age and for the the way people digest and the way my children digest things. And so my son, who is academically uh, really at a high level, I, 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 I give him a debit card for him to use and help him understand how that works. Whereas my four-year-old, when she gets paid, she just puts a little money in her green 
give and her red save and her blue spot. And I also want to talk allowance and commissions in just a minute, if you'll allow me. But um, the key element to this is having dialogue with them on a consistent basis. When you go to the grocery store and they pick out something, tell them how much is that, and then talk about taxes and talk about, I mean, constant conversation about money and being very real is one of the most key attributes of us parents, how we teach kids about money. Really, really great stuff. Um, And I'm wavering back and forth between – Continuing our conversation or jumping off the line right now, getting my wife and kids together and saying, okay, we need to play back the first 25 minutes of this and sit down and go and, and go through it because it really is, it, it makes so much sense. And it, it's really actually inspiring stuff to the attack isn't the right word, but really to, to attack it and, and change your, your behaviors and your approach to, to finances in there. Um, Another one that stood out, again, as I go through, through the book and talking to you, was adult peer pressure. Um, and this is one, and again, using myself as an example, you live in a community, you have kids in private school, it's more of an up, upper class community, I've got clients that I'm dealing with, there are plans that people are making, whether it's relating to sports teams and summer activities, and even just generally meeting people to go out for, for a meal. Um, and it might, and it's obviously, it's more, more behavioral. One of the reasons even I've acquired a coach myself, um, on the life coach side is how you deal with kind of that peer pressure or fear of missing out or keeping up with, with the Joneses. And I'd love to get your take on that too. Yeah, it's so important. You know, to quote Dave Ramsey, he says, act your wage and, You know, Facebook and Pinterest don't help us in this space. Um, and marketers are killing us. And they're killing our kids, too. Um, you think about it. If um, <clears throat> if an appliance store put, um, put in the smell of apple pie, they know sales go up 23%. And if... Um, if you know, um, if somebody, if your child gets a Disney app, I guarantee they're going to get Magical Kingdom advertisements on that thing. They're targeting you to kids, and so you, you, then you go to Pinterest and you see people going on a on a cruise or something, and then your kid's asking you about it, and and before you know it, you feel the pressure. It's unbelievable um, the pressure that exists. Marketers are absolutely. I mean, Christmas is a home run because. Us in the middle class America are getting destroyed because of peer pressure and marketers, and we wonder why we're broke. And so, in and there's a couple ways to to do this um, to overcome this. Um, and, but I'm going to suggest one that's actually pretty hard. Um, they this was a study done. It's actually sitting on my desk right now. So let me see if I can have um, Elizabeth Dunn, um, Larry Acknon, and Michael Norton. Uh, they did, this is in Science Mag of 2008, and and next to that one is the uh, another study from Gallup on my desk called the hap- it's, it says the happiest and unhappiest countries in the world. Mm-hmm. But the study I want to mention to you is I'm going to simplify it. But they gave a bunch of people $20 bills, and they gave Group A or instructions to spend it, and Group B instructions to give it away. And then they surveyed them at the end of the day. Those that gave away the $20 bills were much happier. And, and, and Notre Dame followed up with this study and um, recognized that those that give consistently, um, 10%, they have less depression. And so my point is this. Believe it or not, 
the idea and the art and the science and the enjoyment of setting up a systematic giving plan of your money that's substantial. It's hard to give unless you substantially unless you give systematically. That transforms and it's and it's not it's just it's just science now. It transforms our perspective. We now are engaged with communities that are less fortunate and reading newsletters or having conversations with people in these ministries and nonprofits. And no longer is our conversation about Disney but thinking about how to serve others. And as a result, we can say no to a dinner that we can't afford because we're not worried about impressing anymore because we're comfortable in our own skin. You know, we're the richest nation in the history of the world, and then we're uncomfortable by saying no because we don't have the money to go out to eat. When we give systematically and substantially, and I've done this, by the way, for the last 20 years, it completely changes your perspective. And so that's the biggest challenge I could say. It's not easy, but if people do that, they'll find that that point of reference changes. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, and I guess, if I'm, can you drill this down on more of a micro level in terms of, like, let's say you don't have wealth or means to be giving large sums of money systematically. Can you, are you talking about applying this principle even on a micro level, you know, as well? The- yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. So the first time I started giving when I was, was when I was broke, um, I now give, so that was, um, what was it say probably, this, I want to give you context here. So I think that was about 15 years ago. And, um, I give more today than I made that year. And that year, I think that year that I started giving, um, 15 years ago, my credit cards were equal to my income. Think about that. My credit cards were equal to my income and I was completely broke and I made a commitment um, I just, I just, I didn't have any choice. I just wanted to try something new. And so I made a commitment to give 10% and it wasn't a lot of money. It was just, it was just a, a, a frame of reference for me and I never stopped. So it's, um, the, from a very practical perspective, 10% seems like a lot. So some people might have to ease into it. So they may start out, I'm going to start giving 5%, but people can do that. You can find the money. It's there. It's just a Chili's restaurant. And, and and you give 5% and then just bump it up to 6 and 7 and 10. And then before you know it, you're in a rhythm. And, and, it, and science has proven this over and over again that it transforms your point of reference, that we're no longer um, wrapped up in consumerism, but now we understand how we play a role globally. Yep. So I'm balancing a little bit on here going through, again, the topics that, that stand out to me. Um, and although you've broken although you've broken them down kind of you, you've kind of aged them in there, the one thing I really like and recommend about about the book is that you can really read any chapter at, at any time. You can apply any wherever you are, whatever age or stage you're at, I think you can really you can apply it all um in there. But just like anything else, you just gotta take the first step and, and start out. But budgeting for those not good at budgeting. Okay, which is which is me <laughs> also in there. Yeah. Um, you know, I get a lot of guys on the show. We talk about health and we talk about fitness and we talk about regaining kind of health and fitness and taking that first step and setting and setting a plan together. What is the first step um, in in budgeting for somebody who's not good at it? Yeah. So I give a couple ratios in there that that help people just kind of organize their money. 
um, in a very methodical way. Um, I really, I really like Financial Peace University, though. You, towards the end of the chapter, I'll uh, I'll reference that that's a that's a key element to my success of getting out of a hole, which I was in. You know, I and as a context, I you know I grew up without money, lived in a little trailer park in Castroville, Texas and then struggled to get off the ground financially myself. Um, and that Financial Peace University was a wake-up call for me. It gave me a um, little inspiration. And I was not a Dave Ramsey guy because I, I had already had my CSP and a couple degrees in finance. And so Dave Ramsey was for the guys that don't understand money. And I was sophisticated in, in my mind. So it was a really – I had a real apprehension so the Dave Ramsey, the Dave Ramsey course really set me straight, um, and I started to be very aggressive with paying down debt. Now, with all that being said, people sometimes just still are not inclined to go to Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University. So one of the things you could do, um, again, paying down debt, being aggressive with your money is is um, is is you making sure that you're saving 15% towards retirement. That's really important. Um, if you have some uh, self-control issues in certain that we all have in certain areas, uh, typically I find most of the peer group that we're talking to, it's, it's eating out or, you know, having drinks, um, blowing money in certain areas. I, I've done this. I've done this for 15 years. Um, those areas that I need self-control in, I use cash and I put cash in an envelope. And when cash runs out, I just don't go out. Um, so those are some really easy things to do. And if you don't, you know, I used cash for everything. So when I was doing an envelope system, every single line item in my budget was cash. You may not feel comfortable doing that. So you may say, you know what, my family has challenges in the area of eating out or maybe even Christmas or gifts or whatever. We're going to put uh, self-imposed constraints using cash, a cash envelope system on this one area. And that could be groceries. And you're going to find that you're going to save yourself hundreds of dollars by doing that. And it's going to create the habit of self-control. Yep. I love, I love that. Um, so I'm making notes as, as we go, as we go through this. Is it ever too late to start in, in any of these areas? And you've aged your chapters in here. Um, but let's say you are behind, you know, or you haven't maybe been the best with budgeting or saved, been saving a 15%, um, or maybe a little late to the game on, on your 401k. What, what's your advice if we're talking about starting now in your 40s? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, even then, those are, those are things, you know, what you described are mistakes um, that happen to ourselves. Well, what about just life happening where we had medical issues or kid medical issue and, and it just set us back or a bad job or career decision or things, you know, things that we, you know, we try to be good stewards. It just didn't work out. And, mm-hmm. and there's so many people out there in those situations and it is absolutely not insurmountable to make a comeback. Even those I'm seeing those that even in their seventies are pulling it off. And I'm, I'm telling you, it's happening all the time. You just have to kind of recalibrate a little bit. Let's say somebody in a worst case scenario is in their seventies and they're thinking about retiring. Well, that's why we see people uh, at Amazon um, uh, delivering stuff and they're in their 70s or an Uber driver. There's so many opportunities out there for some part-time work, and you can find purpose and enjoyment in that. And if you're in your 40s and you say, I'm a little bit behind, I had a friend who is an executive for a company deliver pizzas so he could play catch-up. 
it may take a little side hustle, but it's good for you and it's good for your family. If your kids are seeing you putting that extra effort because you have a vision of where you're going, that's going to inspire them. So I think it's actually beautiful when you reframe and say, I'm behind, but I'm going to do something completely insanely different to catch up. It's not only good for your character building opportunity, but for those around you will see you and be inspired as well. So just as long as you don't have that point of reference where you're thinking about everyone else's money, because I literally seen thousands of people's checkbooks and I've seen people who make a million dollars that are completely broke, but they're driving cars that you would think they're rich. So stop worrying about what they're making or doing. Just do what you know you're supposed to do for the betterment of your future self and your family and you'll be just fine. Yep. I love it. Really, really, really great stuff. Um, I tell you, I was a little apprehensive. I was a little nervous, um, even a little scared to kind of kind of do this with you for what you might say. Taking that long, hard look in the mirror, also um, about how how I'm living, family living. But I genuinely appreciate and uh, all of the advice and the insight on this. Dell, how do people find you? Also, um, are you yeah. are you available as an advisor? Also. Um, is it, you know, again, starting out by reading your books? Like, what's the best way to get more from you? Um, because I've gotten so much out of this today, and I know everybody else out there has too. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, you know, 18 to 80, the book that I wrote, that's on Amazon. So pick that up and digest that. That's easy. Uh, go to PaxFinancialGroup.com. Uh, all our advisors here are on salary. Um, we're getting a lot of uh, attention in this space. We're Inc. 5000's fastest-growing company in the last couple of years. Um, we love serving middle America with the heart of a teacher. So if somebody needs some uh, direction in this space, we'll be your guide. So you can go to PAX Financial Group and kind of look at who, we're, who we are. Um, feel free to do that and then get the book in, in however way we can help you. Those would be the two ways. You can find me personally. I'm on Twitter, but I like LinkedIn. So if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, that's probably mm-hmm. the best place, Daryl Lyons at LinkedIn. That is how we connected uh, as, as well. Well, Daryl Lyons, I want to thank you so much for being part of the Midlife Mail podcast. This was a really, really informative uh, episode today. I learned a ton. Again, I think everybody out there did as well. Pick up the book. Check it out. If you liked what you heard today, give us that good review. Um, if you didn't, hey, don't, don't say anything at all, but spread the word. We want to put the Midlife Mail mission out there and keep our community growing. Daryl Lyons, thank you so much. Can't wait to have you back again. Hey, thanks for having me. I had a blast. Yeah, but take care. The Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheinman was presented by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. For more information, visit innsgroup.net.